we couldn't really go out and attract young people or um, new employers without this good piece of, of infrastructure. This is episode 309 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. As one of our most rural states, Maine has many regions lacking in high-quality connectivity. Over the past few years, we've seen several communities engage in projects to develop publicly-owned networks. They want to bring broadband to places where big ISPs won't upgrade their services. In this week's podcast, Christopher talks with Julie Jordan, who lives and works in one of those rural Maine communities. The towns of Baileyville and Callis have joined together to form the Down East Broadband Utility. They plan to deploy a fiber optic network in the region for residents and businesses. Their project caught the eye of the Post Road Foundation, a nonprofit organization that is researching the possibilities of linking smart grid applications and multiple utility functions. In this interview, Christopher talks with Julie about the Down East Broadband Utility Project, some of the challenges they've had to overcome, and how the Post Road Foundation will be involved in studying their project. Now here's Christopher with Julie Jordan from the Down East Broadband Utility in Maine. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And today I'm speaking with Julie Jordan, the director of the Down East Broadband Utility. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. I'm really excited to be talking to you because I was just out in Maine, where the Down East region is, and I find Maine to be inspiring uh, in terms of the work that's being done from local communities. And I'm just really excited to tell more people about what's happening. Uh, but the first thing is uh, when we say Down East, um, and talking about the communities of Baileyville and Callis, I think Lisa wanted to make sure I pronounced that correctly, um, <laughs> that people, you did. people have a sense of uh, what we're talking about. So where are Baileyville and Callis? Okay, geographically, um, we're actually considered way down east. Um, I think most people think of Rockland, Rockport, Camden uh, as true down east region. So we're north of Bar Harbor by about three hours on the Canadian border. Oh, St. Croix River divides us um, from New Brunswick, Canada. So we're about as far east um, in the state as you can get. And that is on the right on the Canadian border. So people might be thinking of it as the northeast part of the state, but it is called Down East. It is. It's a little confusing. We like to keep everybody on their toes. So what is uh, what's life like in the Down East, in your particular corner of the Down East, I should say? Um, life is really nice and good, clean living. It's rural. Um, we're a tad isolated geographically because we're not close to an interstate. There's uh, a main road called the Airline Road that will take you from Bangor directly to us. It's about 100 miles due east. But other than that, um, it's Route 1. So we're pretty far from the interstate. Uh, Well, we're the largest producer, I think, of wild blueberries for, for the world's production. I think we produce 85% of wild blueberries. And we have, of course, the forestry industry and uh, paper products. So Baileyville is more of a manufacturing center. There's uh, Woodland Pulp and St. Croix Tissue are the big employers in that area. And then a little south of Baileyville, which is Callis, about eight miles, they, um, they do more of the retail sector for the county, basically, on both sides of the border, Charlotte County, New Brunswick, and Washington County, Maine. 
So it's a slow pace, uh, really nice, small town, great scenery. And the Down East Broadband Utility, it's, uh, it came about in part because of a need to encourage uh, more economic development, which is, I think, when you hear a description of your community, uh, one of the things people are often thinking of is it growing or shrinking in the, in the modern economy, and places without high-quality Internet access seem to be on the shrinking end of that generally. Uh, that's so true, Chris. Uh, our project really started uh, when we were focusing on economic development for the region. Our area's been stagnant and, and actually declining in demographics um, for the past two decades for a lot of reasons, but we didn't want to see that continue. So the two communities got together and said, let's focus on the region as a whole, not each community individually and see what we can do to attract new employers to this area. And that's when we hit the wall with our infrastructure issues, namely broadband, that although we have some service, um, it wasn't always reliable and it wasn't fast enough to accommodate the needs of a lot of employers, including um, one that's already here, St. Croix Tissue. Um, they, you know, the equipment today for Paper production is all computerized, and they just really needed to have a fiber connection. So that's how we got started. Um, we couldn't really go out and, and attract young people or um, new employers necessarily without this good piece of, of infrastructure. Before the Down East Broadband Utility was was created, then I'm just curious how, as you were weighing your options, did you um, did you rapidly decide that you'd have to do it yourself, or was that something you came to after um, having some other plans that that went different directions, or how did that come about? It did. It came about with research. I mean, our first we we didn't know what we were doing, certainly even how to start. So the first thing we did was call all of our local providers, including our um, incumbents, you know, the bigger players, to the table and ask for their advice. You know, how would you do this if you were going to do it? Um, what are your suggestions for any kind of model to structure ownership of, of the fiber? And we got lots of great input. Um, from especially from our locals right around here, and and based on those discussions, we decided, gee, what if we formed our own utility, um, a regional one, which fortunately for Maine um, we can do here, the Maine State Legislature, and you're probably familiar with the statute uh, that was tweaked in 2017, allowing municipalities to uh, form to form together a regional utility strictly for the purposes of broadband. Um, either expanding existing infrastructure or putting a new infrastructure in place. So that's what we went with um, so that the utility will own the fiber and then lease it to providers with an open access system. I mean, you could start by telling us a little bit about how much you're expecting it to cost, but I'm curious about your reaction to that as well. The first reaction was definitely sticker shock. When we met with providers, because again, we, we hadn't done a design study at this point to get a real figure, um, but these providers had experience in the field. And we said, what do you think? You know, just, just guesstimate. Are we talking $1 million? Are we talking, you know, $20 million? We had no idea. It's basically 87 miles that we were trying to fiber up here. We want to reach um, 100% of of the premises in each community. And the figures varied really quite a bit um, from each provider. So
so that when we did finally get a design plan in place and saw um, the real figure, which was a bit less than most of the providers had, had started us out with, it was a relief. It was like, wow, we can really <laughs> do this. We can really do it. So um, I think the first numbers were came in were high. Some might have been a little lower. Um, and I think we don't know the final figure yet, Chris, but we're estimating about $3 million. Um, I'll be honest, I think, you know, we've miscalculated on a few items in the pro forma. For instance, insurance. Poll owners um, require $5 million in liability plus a surety bond um, for any work being done on polls. And that was almost twice as much as we expected. And that mostly was because we are not a tried and true entity yet. Mm-hmm. We didn't have three years of audited financials. We actually had trouble finding an insurance company that would would write a bond for us. That delayed our project about six weeks. We got numbers as low, and this was without design work. So these were true guesstimates based really on miles and a rough guess about, of premises um, from as low as our first one, I think, was two million, maybe even a little under, to four point eight million. That was the range mm-hmm. that we got, um, and we thought, well, if we could be somewhere around three, then we think we can raise the money, and what, that's when we paid for the design work. And it, it's sort, it's it's a big risk. It's a jump you have to make to because the design work cost eighty thousand dollars, and we don't have that money. We tried to get grants, and we couldn't. So we're borrowing the 80000 just to make sure that that $3 million number is actually going to be real. And that's that's really helpful because one of the things you'll find, of course, is that when you get um, bids to actually do the work and begin constructing, that the more rigorous you were in the design, the more accurate the bid should be and the easier of a path you should have through the rest of the, the process. Right. That's correct. Now, are you on the three-ring binder? We are. That's got to be a tremendous help. There's a lot of communities, I think, who are who are thinking, well, how do you get out of Down East and, and back to Bangor on your way to Boston or something like that? But uh, that's been solved by you. Um, if you want to just briefly let people know uh, who aren't familiar with that project, um, you know, like a 90-second um, background on it would be really helpful. Okay, so the three-ring binder was, I believe, funded with $26 million of federal funds. Um, to go up the coast of Maine and circle um, around the top and come back down and connect, oh, maybe in central Maine. Um, but it's basically the backbone of fiber networks. So the, the thought process was if we put this in place, then we'll have all these providers come and pull the fiber off the three-ring binder and take it to the last mile, the last premise take it down the side street and everybody will hook up because that part is already there. Um, that didn't really work out. Um, and I'm not sure when it was installed. Chris, you probably know this. Right. Well, it was built after the, the 2010 or 2009 stimulus. Um, so I would assume around 2010, 2011, 2012-ish. So a lot of it uh, remained un- unleased and still is unleased. I think it's owned by Maine Fiber Company now, and they lease it out to providers who uh, will use it say, in our project, to take it out to the last mile. So it is helpful, definitely. Good, yeah. We actually, I did a conversation with Fletcher Kittredge um, in which we talked about uh, middle mile versus last mile in some of this because 
Um, I, I have been arguing for more than 10 years that uh, the uh, middle mile investments do not catalyze last mile investments. The economics um, aren't don't quite work in that way. Um, but you do need to have the middle mile for communities like yours to be able to uh, build last mile. Um, so if people are interested, uh, Fletcher has been a, a wonderful person uh, helping um, folks in Maine. He runs GWI, uh, a company that's been doing internet access for a long time. Um, but if people really get into that debate, um, there's a, a podcast in our archives that covers it. But at any rate, I think it's worth noting that because of that really smart investment and because the main fiber company keeps that fiber open for others to use, um, it's um, terrific for you. And and actually, yeah. it seems to me that that's sort of how you want to run your network locally as well, right? Yes. that's It's the same model. We'll lease the fiber to the providers and have them bring it out to the customers. And um, to do that, you're actually working with uh, another of the local companies in, in Maine that's uh, making a difference. Um, can you just tell us about how everything fits together in terms of the role Pioneer plays in um, building the network and then um, how you'll operate it? Okay, so Pioneer Broadband uh, was one of our local providers that we sat down um, and talked with when we were first talking about this project. And they're based, Chris, in northern Maine out of Holton. Um, and they had a little experience in putting fiber optic networks in Holton, Maine, and a few other smaller communities. And they were really um, very creative in their approach with us because they wanted to expand their territory. They wanted to grow, and they wanted to move southward, and they thought we would be a good project for them to um, to make that move, and we would be a good fit. So they offered to do our feasibility study for us at no cost because we had no money for that either. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we uh, were very appreciative of that and asked them to please do the design work. So they've done all of the design work for us and they will oversee the build um, to have the network constructed. At which point, and we're in this process right now, we'll issue a request for a proposal for all providers throughout the state to operate and maintain this network. We don't have the expertise to do that, and frankly, we don't want it. We, we'd bring experts in, offer a multi-year contract um, to operate and maintain, and pay them an annual fee to do that. And that's built into our model, our financing model. To be clear, the company that will be maintaining it, they'll just be um, maintaining it, making sure it works, and other providers will be able to access it. Um, That's right. Now, will the maintainer be able to also offer services on it? Yes, they will. Okay. So they'll just be making sure that if something breaks, it's fixed and um, that there's a good... And they'll do billing, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So the utility will will accept the lease payments from from all the providers that are using the fiber and take those lease payments, pay the firm that's going to operate and maintain, and pay off the debt. So the the utility is really the, specifically the Downeast Broadband Utility, is really there to make it happen and to deal with the financing. Um, But aside from that, um, there's uh, the role is just making sure that it continues to um, work from an administrative point of view. Correct. That's, that's it's one of those things that I think people sometimes miss the importance of because without you, it wouldn't start. Um, now, if you can have a small ongoing role, I'm sure you'll view that as a success. Yes. 
will view it as a great success. Um, now, one other entity is coming in to, to help make this work, which is um, terrific. It's an organization called the Post Road Foundation. Uh, tell us a little bit about them. Post Road Foundation um, is an arm of the Kennedy School of Economics from Harvard University. And they've been funded in part by the Rockefeller Foundation to study intelligent infrastructure or smart grid technology, uh, specifically in rural communities across the country. And so they reached out to us because we're rural, number one. Uh, We've done a little groundwork here by starting to build a fiber optic network. And we're also um, in a region that has an electric cooperative. So their study, Chris, is going to be to to examine the territory of this electric cooperative and do a what if. What if we had a fiber optic network that went throughout this territory on all of these utility poles that combined all forms of infrastructure, electricity, internet, sewer, water, smart smart city technology, um, home security, you know where I'm going with this, right? What if it was all combined? Would it be more efficient use of energies? Would it cost less for the consumer? And would it leave a softer footprint in the environment? And so we're going to be part of that study. We were one of five communities, or we're a region, actually, that was selected, two others in Maine, and I think one in Georgia and one in Michigan. And they'll start that study any day now, they should finish up by the end of September and publish and release the results and then take it from there if the results are as expected. Yeah, one of the things that I'm very excited about with them is that uh, they, I think, get it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's it's always dangerous when someone comes to you advice and you go around telling everyone how smart they are because they've listened to you. <laughs> you know, I was I'm only one of many people that they've consulted as they've been um, looking at this, but I um, I'm very excited because I think they fully understand the ways in which there's all kinds of indirect benefits, uh, some of which have material benefits for communities um, to make sure that everyone has this this high quality. Access. So um, I think people should really pay attention to what they come out with in September. Yeah, we're really excited. And, and you know, the potential is enormous if, if the results of the study are, are as hoped to then start modeling the build out of these infrastructures of communities on, on what they've learned and what it could really just, it could just empower communities all over the country. And one of the things that I think they'll bring is um, is perhaps new sources of capital, um, new entities that uh, will have an interest in investing in this um, that mm-hmm. will really uh, help as as we see more and more rural areas, I think, doing what you're doing. Um, but there's, there's one other piece of one of the things that I love about Maine that I want to touch on, and that is that you're, you've had some slowdowns because of pole attachment and pole challenges, but things are looking up. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you're optimistic about poles um, being less of a hassle for you than others. Well, I'm going to just credit the state of Maine, uh, the Maine Public Utilities Commission, for finally taking a hard look at um, what it takes for anyone, any organization to attach to a utility pole. The process is so lengthy and cumbersome and, and actually isn't, isn't uniform in any way. So one pole owner can have different requirements than another one. 
So they, the, the PUC, main PUC, took a good hard look and said, wait a minute, we think this is out of control. Um, we want to really help communities put fiber in place or expand an existing infrastructure. So we're going we're gonna to change the rules a little bit. And for us, it was exciting because pole attachment is the largest cost for this project for, I think, anybody. Definitely for us, huge. It's almost a million dollars of the three million is our estimate. Well, and if I could just jump in for a second, it's also a source of uncertainty because, you know, for your financial arrangement, um, you're expecting after two years to be negotiating your line of credit into a loan. And if after two years only half the network is built because of pole attachment um, challenges and, and you're not even sure when you're going to be able to build the rest of it, that that's going to be a major financial headache. Yes, it will. And so fortunately, you'll avoid that. <laughs> we can avoid some of the costs that we've projected because the PUC has said we're going to let some of these people attach behind the poles or at the bottom of a pole. And and that will lower costs that you don't have to get five other wire owners up there to move their wire five inches to accommodate ours, which is, really adds to the cost. But as far as how long pole owners can take to allow you to attach, that's probably not going to change for a while. Certainly not in time to accommodate our project if we move ahead. We do hope that the rental fees that are attached to pole attachment may change to our benefit before the end of the summer. That's our big hope. And so to reiterate, the, the two of the big things for you are that you can go on the back of the poles and at the bottom of the poles. We can go on the back or the bottom. In, in the past, the pole owner could say, you know what, we think you need to go um, halfway up the pole. And there are two other lines that um, are there already. So you're going to have to get the people who have those lines here to move theirs. And then we're going to let you attach. So now you've got to go to another party and say, all right, will you please move your line? And you fill out those applications and you pay those fees. And then you hope they come and do that in a timely manner. I mean, right now, poll owners can take up to 179 days before they'll say, okay, go ahead, you're good to go. Now, do they have to take that? No. And will they? We don't know. That's our, our gamble. Right. Well, we're very enthusiastic about these changes, and we really hope that it leads to um, you know you having as minimal a headache as possible. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but I'm, I guess I have one final question, which is kind of the local reaction. I mean, I'm, has there been anyone that's sort of skeptical of this, or um, you know, in, in, in some areas, the incumbents go to a great effort to try to confuse people or mislead them. Has there been opposition to what you're doing? Certainly, I've gotten some pushback, not as much as we expected. But I mean, I'm not sure that anybody thinks this is really going to happen yet. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure we're on anybody's radar enough to get a lot of pushback. But there has been some. There's been a lot of skepticism um, that this is a, a good project, a viable project, a worthwhile project. I think, you know, we're preparing for some major pushback. Um, so we've engaged a marketing firm to keep our message positive and out there because there's a lot, been a lot of time between when the voters said, yes, we're going to allow you to borrow this money and build this network, and when they actually see somebody on a pole attaching fiber. Mm -hmm. We don't want enthusiasm to wane. We don't want our positive message about what this can do for this area 
to lessen in any regard. So we need to keep potential subscribers engaged. And so that's why we've hired a digital marketing firm just to really target these two communities, um, keep the news out there all the time, you know, and we'll combine that with a grassroots effort with our buttons and our posters and coming soon to a utility pole near you, you know, fiber optic broadband. Yes, that's excellent. We're hoping that's going to really help to keep our subscription rates where we want them to be. And so what is the what is the timeline as we wrap up the show here? We've already submitted our first poll attachment application. So the best case, if poll owners are as excited as we are about this, they'll let us start uh, doing work in July. If they take it to 179 days, then we're, we're looking at December, January. Yeah, and that's unfortunately rough. I'm um, being in a part of the country that also has winter. Uh, that can be challenging. Yes, <laughs> it can be. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to looking in on you and getting a sense of, of how things are going. And thank you so much for sharing this model. I think it's inspiring for folks, um, not just that you that you decided to move forward with this, but that you're able to work with local providers in such a collaborative fashion. Thanks, Chris. That was Christopher with Julie Jordan from the Down East Broadband Utility in Maine discussing their fiber optic project. Read more about the project at muninetworks.org and at downeastbroadband.com. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. You can subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast, Access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any place you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thanks to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons, and thanks for listening to episode 309 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>